One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Lev Grossman, author of the novels Warp and Codex and the best-selling Magicians trilogy, which includes The Magicians, The Magician King, and The Magician's Land. Grossman is also a book critic for Time Magazine and writes essays for publications such as The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Wired. The Magician's Trilogy begins when main character Quentin Coldwater, a depressive high school student in New York, gains entrance to a secret magician's college. Coldwater, like others at his school, is obsessed with fantasy books about a land called Fillory. After graduation, he and his fellow students must test their magical might when they find a portal to Fillory and face more than they bargained for. We began our discussion over Skype, talking about Grossman's imagination as a child. I asked him what it was like. I've never been asked that before. It's a good question. I was very given to fantasies as a child. Fantasies in the sense of imagining things, um, imaginary, wish-fulfilling fantasies. I, it's, it sounds like the sort of glib thing a writer would say, but I really wasn't that interested in reality. Um, I was really often in dream world. Something weird that happened to me uh, when I was a kid, I was on a baseball team, and uh, I was, uh, I think I was playing third base, and uh, I was pretty lousy at baseball, um, because I was very small and just not that tuned into reality. I just spaced out all the time. And I remembered I was standing there at third base and baseball was a bad sport for me because, you know, there's long periods where, uh, nothing happens to you. So, uh, I had trouble to kind of staying focused, uh, waiting for something to happen. Um, and I'd read a book about a baseball team. Um, and, um, one of the characters was in the, on the team, was named Shadow, and he was always 
um, jumping around in the outfield, pretending to make these great plays, uh, just sort of acting out little fantasy sequences. Um, and as kind of a fantasy of a fantasy, I started doing that. I started pretending to be this character who would pretend to carry out imaginary plays. Um, and I would sort of jump around and, um, uh, you know, I, I was like seven or something um, and pretend to catch the ball and things like that. And I made a big sort of diving leap uh, as if there'd you know, been a line drive hit at me and I was diving for it. Um, and I hit the ground and I looked at my glove and the ball was in my glove. There actually had been a line drive hit at me and I leaped and in a truly the greatest athletic feat of my childhood, um, caught this ball before it hit the ground at, you know, at full extension. Um, I must on some level have kind of aligned my fantasy with what was actually happening in the world. It was the most bizarre thing. And everybody cheered and I just sat there looking at the ball in my glove and thinking, what on earth just happened? From what I read, the magicians began from a dream you had, which included a beast in a classroom of children. How did you go from that dream and that vision and making it into a scene into this novel? Well, you know, I, I spent a lot of my writing life um, not writing fantasy. Uh, I spent a lot of it writing whatever the other, whatever the other thing is, realism. Um, and one of the things that writing that scene allowed me to do was kind of get at feelings, intense feelings, um, emotions, fear, horror, um, the sublime, um, that I wasn't able to get on the page in realist scenarios. For some reason, uh, I wasn't able to, to uh, get that kind of effect. Writing, writing it as a fantasy, writing it as a world where there's a magical incursion into the real world. That was the first time, you know, I really felt like I was getting at the intensity of the stuff that was going on in my head. Uh, and then of course I went back and filled in the whole story around that scene. Uh, but that was where it began for me. Did you have any fears writing something that is fantasy as an adult and just, you know, it's riskier to get published probably to write something like that? And you said you were embedded in this sort of realistic writing. Oh, I, I got dragged into fantasy kicking and screaming. Um, it, I mean, just witnessed the fact that I wrote almost daily for 15 years before I tried my hand at it. Um, uh, I, um, having grown up, I grew up in a very literary household. My parents were both English professors. Um, uh, I had, I always loved fantasy and read it, but I never imagined myself writing it. And I think it's in part, and this is sort of sad to say, but you know, in my family where I grew up, um, I, that wasn't really what we imagined literature to be. Uh, I was sort of not really raised to be a fantasy writer, except, uh, so when I finally got around to it, um, it was, I think, in part um, because it felt so forbidden and scary. Uh, that sense when you're writing that um, you're doing something, you're crossing a line, you're, you're doing something wrong, that alarm bells are going off somewhere. Um, it was the first time I'd ever had that feeling, and uh, it scared me at first. Now it's the feeling that I chase in my writing, that feeling that I'm breaking rules and crossing lines that shouldn't be crossed. One of the main ideas of the magicians is that the main character Quentin not only does he go to this magical school but he's very obsessed with these books about this land called Fillory that um, he's read about so there's books in there and on page seven 
when he was talking about the book and his experience, he said, it's like he's opening the covers of a book, but a book that did what books always promised to do and never actually quite did, get you out, really out of where you were and into somewhere better. And I felt like this was also a comment about literature from you. So can you talk a little bit about writing this and your thoughts about that? When I started writing The Magicians, I very much wanted to write um, a, a, a book that had books in it um, because I like them, because I always like books about books, um, books that have that second order of fiction kind of embedded inside them. Uh, and I was also conscious, um, you know, a lot of The Magicians plays off of and plays with uh, the Harry Potter story, a story about the education of a wizard. And one of the things I've always been conscious about Harry Potter, which I love, is um, that there aren't a lot of books in Harry Potter. And Harry, Harry himself isn't really a reader, which I find very odd. This is a kid who was raised in an abusive household, isolated, you know, locked in his little closet bedroom. Um, if he wasn't reading in there, what was he doing? I feel like there's a missing piece to the Harry story, is that Harry himself would have been obsessed with fantasy novels. Uh, so I made Quentin obsessed with fantasy novels, which has very important repercussions for the books, because when he discovers that magic is real and he goes to a school for magic, he has all kinds of ideas about what that's going to be like based on the fiction that he's read. And of course, those ideas are wrong. And he has to undergo, along with an education in magic, an education in what exactly is the difference between fiction and reality? Why is reality so intractable and poorly organized and difficult and unsatisfying in a way that books aren't. Quentin has somebody who has to come to terms with that. And that begins with his being obsessed with fiction. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. In there, there's a suggestion that a lot of books don't do what they're supposed to do, meaning take you to another world. And I'm wondering, I'm assuming you're, you're an avid reader as a book critic um, and as a writer, do you feel disappointment a lot by the books that you read? Well, just to back up for a sec, no books do that. No book takes you out of reality. Um, one of that great, the great things about reading is that sense that you're looking at the page, you're lost in the page, but right around the edge of the page, just beyond the margins is, is reality. Um, books, no, no book takes you away. And it's part of the promise of books. Uh, and in a funny way, part of their power is that they always disappoint you and leave you back in reality. That said, um, I'm almost always disappointed by novels. I think that, uh, well, I, I, I get sent, you know, dozens of books a week, um, 
you know, hundreds, thousands of, of tens of thousands of novels are published every year. Hardly any of them are, are, are any, any good. It's just one of those things about novels is that um, they're very hard to do. Uh, even very clever, talented, well-intentioned people write a lot of bad novels. Great novels are things that, that you know, are huge statistical outliers. Just looking back through history, there's only a few published every year. So I would say disappointment is almost a constant in uh, the business of being a book critic. Do you have a favorite? Uh, you know, novels are so variegated that it becomes a little bit apples and oranges. But um, if I were, if I had to name a favorite novel, the novel I would name would be Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lev Grossman, author of the Magician's Trilogy of Literary Fantasy Novels. Our interview was recorded on Skype. When you set up to write this book, you know, for, and I don't know, you know, how many mainstream, you know, there's your fantasy fans who just go for fantasy and then there's people who read all kinds of books and um, l- literary fiction. And literary fiction, I think, has literary fiction often maybe talks to other fiction in the way that your book talks to Harry Potter and probably other influences of your life. And I'm wondering, you know, for some people, it might be enough to read about this whole new world and have the magic. But you had such deep human relationships in there and Quentin's own journey that I just wanted to ask you about that. I mean, maybe it sounds obvious in a way, but um, the human drama amidst the fantasy, can you talk about sort of layering that in and why it's important? Yeah, of course. Um, It's a lot to say about that. Uh, I'm going to start and, 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 the slightly devil's advocate e-way. Um, I, I actually would argue that fantasy readers, I find fantasy readers to be um, um, in some ways more uh, willing to venture outside their comfort zone than, than literary fiction readers. I'm, I like to see uh, the magicians shelved in literary fiction um, largely because I find that literary readers won't tend to go into the fantasy aisle. But fantasy readers will go anywhere. Uh, they'll look anywhere if they think there's fantasy there. They're happy to go into the literary fiction aisle. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of border crossing in uh, in both directions. Um, but to 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 focus on the on the um, emotions for a second, uh, when I sold the magicians, uh, it could, sort of could have gone either way. It could have been sold to a fantasy publisher who might have focused more on the the genre elements. But it was sold to Viking, which is a literary fiction publisher. And my editor there had no particular interest in fantasy or even knowledge of it. Um, And she said, basically, I want this book to function. Uh, If you were to take away the magic, I want it to be a book that would still function and satisfy. Um, It's great that the magic is there, but the emotions have to stand on their own. And that was very, very important to me. Uh, my, my own sort of reading life is kind of a little bit bifurcated. Uh, I love fantasy, but I'm also a big reader of literary fiction, especially the modernists. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot about, you know, how to build a kind of interior life, uh, an interior world from writers like Joyce and Wolfe. Uh, and the goal of, of the magicians, or, or one of them, is to kind of build a fantasy world and then fill it with people who have their own fully fleshed out inner worlds inside them. 
So your main character in The Magician is named Quentin, and he's generally, I would say, not always unhappy, but dissatisfied. He's always looking for something better. He does have a vision out there of what he thinks his perfect life will be, and he gets to that place where he could have it, and he realizes that he's still not happy. And I'm just wondering about you forming his character as these, this being his main trait. Yes, poor, poor old Quentin. Um, he's a real malcontent. Uh, and at times, I'm, uh, it can be hard to watch. Uh, he, one, of his, one of his main traits is, yeah, his uh, endless restless, restlessness, his dissatisfaction with whatever is going on around him. He's dissatisfied in Brooklyn. He's always dreaming of somewhere else. Um, but what happens uh, with Quentin, and this is, you know, this was one of the sort of main kind of thought experiments of the book. Uh, Quentin is a lot like I was when I was 17, um, uh, except he's somewhat taller. Uh, he is really invested in, in fictions um, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the point where he's, he's just lost all interest in reality. It just seems gross and, un, and, and pointless to him. And then he gets his heart's desire. He discovers that magic is real, and he's to be allowed to go to this school for magic um, and live in this world where magic is all around him. Uh, and it, he thinks his problems are over, but they're not. He slowly comes to be dissatisfied with that world, with the world of breakables, the school for magic. Um, and then he goes another level down, and he discovers that Fillory is real, this sort of Narnia-like other world. And he goes there. Um, and even that, he discovers he's, he's fully capable of being miserable there, um, which really leaves him up against it and forces him to confront the fact that, you know, there's kinds of problems that follow you wherever you go and that magic can't solve. Yeah, it's interesting. On page 72, I, I circled this. It says at the very bottom, once magic was real, everything else just seemed so unreal. This is, a, this is a, a problem that started for me with the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was a really formative book for me. Um, I know now that the point of, of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the Pevensies go to Narnia, um, and they, they romp around with Aslan, who's a big, sort of a big furry Jesus. And, uh, and then they learn sort of lots of moral lessons and kind of how to be in the world, and they come back, uh, and everything's fine again. I loved that novel when I was a child, but I was, I, I could never accept that they had to go back home at the end. I only ever wanted them to stay. Um, and that novel made me into a kind of weird sort of, um, uh, um, sort of existentialist almost where, uh, the world seems utterly pointless. Um, because I knew, I knew everything, it was all really happening in Narnia. And if I could just find the wardrobe or the crack in reality and get through it, um, then everything would be exciting. And until then, uh, I was stuck in reality, this place that just didn't matter at all. And was nothing that happened there, you know, seemed to be of any consequence. Um, and as a result, as a result, I was quite depressed for many years before I, um, learned to get over myself. Your characters sweep themselves away with so much alcohol. Um, they are 
uh, Quentin, it seems like he's in the middle of senior year, really, when he goes, but they're basically college age. And they drink so much. And I just wanted to ask you about the alcohol consumption in the novel. Yes, I got some concerning um, letters when The Magicians first came out, sort of like, are you okay? Do you need, do you need an intervention? Um, the, the truth was, um, I, I thought it was, um, uh, to use a loaded word, realistic. I thought that if you had that many kids who were that intense, whose brains were worrying that fast, um, were that ambitious and that screwed up in the same space, they would turn to alcohol a lot to blunt these really powerful emotions they have just um, flying around inside them um, and just get their brains to turn a little bit slower. I went to Harvard as an undergraduate and I saw a little bit of that among the kind of type A characters um, at Harvard, of which there were a lot. Uh, you know, I was also conscious that, you know, I was writing the story about a school for magic, and it was very important to me to differentiate it from Harry Potter and say, look, I'm doing something a little bit different here. I'm including things that uh, aren't really there in, um, in Harry Potter and Hogwarts, like, for example, the kind of heavy drinking that I think would happen. Uh, I think it would happen at Hogwarts, too, like w way beyond Hogsmeade. Hogsmeade would be like a shit show if it were a real place. Uh, likewise, there would be way more sex. I mean, Hogwarts is a high school. Um, things would be a lot more hot and heavy, I think, uh, in reality than uh, they are in the books, which I don't consider as a criticism. But when I was sort of, if I was trying to do sort of um, uh, a sort of a corrective or a sort of more quote-unquote realistic version. Um, I wanted all the drinking and the drugs and the sex to be in there um, to, you know, to give it that extra feeling of um, authenticity. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lev Grossman, author of the Magician's Trilogy of literary fantasy novels. Our interview was recorded on Skype. In the book, when you're talking about um, why people can't do ma magic. They're kind of new in the school. And Quentin is having a conversation with a new friend, Elliot. Elliot said, it's very hard and they're not smart enough. It's very hard and they're not obsessive and miserable enough to do all the work you have to do to do it right. And they lack the guidance and mentorship provided by the dedicated and startlingly charismatic faculty of their school. And they laugh, lack tough starchy moral fiber necessary to wield awesome magical energies calmly and responsibly. So you're getting a sense for how hard this is and, and maybe why they drink. But when I read this, I was just thinking, wow, this is all of these answers could be applied to why people don't write. Doing magic for me, um, the way that I write about it in the books has a lot to do with writing. I didn't really realize how much it had to do until I was almost done with the magicians. But um, almost every, almost every, in every case when I'm talking about magic, um, uh, you could equally well uh, apply what I'm saying to writing. Uh, it's a funny thing, really, because the magicians was a big breakthrough for me, a big breakthrough for me as a writer. I mean, it was just, it was faster and more intense and more pleasurable. Um, uh, than anything I'd, I'd written before. Um, and there's this funny moment in, the, in an early chapter where Quentin does magic for the first time and you know, really cuts loose and all this energy inside him just busts out. 
and starts wreaking havoc in the room. Uh, that was me writing about the, in that scene, me writing in that scene, I was writing about the experience of writing that scene. I was writing about what it felt like to have words really pour out of me, to feel like I was really getting on, on paper for the first time some of the emotional chaos that was inside me. Um, uh, I, was, I, was writing it, I was writing about it as it was happening um, and was not really aware of it at all. It's a, it's a, it's a very funny thing on, on, on the order of the funniness of catching that ball on the, uh, in the baseball game. Uh, um, you're absolutely, so I guess what I'm saying is you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I was, I'm very much talking about writing when I'm talking about magic. One of the things that I thought was really stunning in your book was how well you depicted teenage girls. And I don't know if people have told you this and, and there, your, your male characters were, were great too, but there was a, a sense that you had about the female characters that angst and maybe a mousiness and a desire to break out of it or a, a desire to get rid of your past and just feel love or whatever. Is this something that you've had comments about or that you thought a lot about when you were writing? People have talked about it. I, I, I think of it as a, as a very big compliment. So in the second book, in The Magician King, I actually took the leap to writing from a young woman's point of view. Uh, and I found it incredibly liberating uh, and uh, surprisingly so. Um, it was a kind of literary cross-dressing that I'd never tried before. And... Um, as much as The Magicians was a breakthrough for me as a writer, I feel like I broke through even again, writing from the point of view of Julia, this character, who's uh, a minor character in The Magicians and a major one in The Magician King. Um, and I've, I've, I've never, I'm sure my therapist knows why this is. Uh, I've never thought very, very deeply about it. Um, but I feel very natural writing uh, about women um, and I enjoy it a lot. Maybe because I'm just not a especially conventionally masculine guy. Uh, I've always, as I probably mentioned before, I'm short, I'm skinny. You know, I've never felt like a big sort of hairy, manly guy. Uh, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But I feel very um, free and comfortable writing uh, as a woman. Well, I think, you know, for me as a reader, that's where the act of imagination and empathy is most powerful. Like maybe you were saying earlier about the difference between magic and reality and what is reality. You know, I can go there with you. If you tell me this, you know, this is a world where beasts come out of nowhere. Okay. And I can buy that, but it's really, I feel like the real act of imagination sometimes is the way in which you can inhabit, a writer can inhabit a character. Oh my God, it's so much harder. I mean, it, when you write, you, to write a, a, a magical beast, it's great. Nobody knows what a magical beast look like. looks like. They can't tell you your magical beast is wrong um, because magical beasts aren't really like that. Um, you're just making it up and everybody says, okay. Writing about reality, everybody knows reality. Everybody recognizes it when they see it and recognize it. And, and knows when you get it wrong. Reality is so much harder than magic. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lev Grossman, author of the Magician's Trilogy of Literary Fantasy Novels. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer and may, may have influenced this book? I'm so happy to be able to do that. I'm going to read a passage from a book, which is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, which came out in 2004. And it is no coincidence that I started writing The Magicians in 2004, because I put down Jonathan Strange and thought, this is what's happening in novels. I have to try to, to write something like this. I'm going to read a short passage in which the author, Susanna Clark, describes magic. It's set during the Napoleonic era, and the um, one of the main characters, Jonathan Strange, or maybe it's Mr. Norrell, now I'm forgetting. Uh, he's cast a spell to create the illusion of ships in French ports. There, he, he created an illusion that there are warships barricading these ports, and as a result, nobody can get out of the French ports, and it's really bedeviling the French, and they're trapped. And Clark writes about these three characters who we never, we will never meet again, even though they're incredibly realistically drawn. Um, and they're just three French people standing on, uh, on the coast, looking at these illusory ships and wondering what they are and how they got there. And I'll just read a little passage where they're sort of starting to figure out what's going on, because they've never seen magic done before. Um, and just, you sort of have to look and see how real the magic feels. I'd never seen anything like it. Our adventurers could see that the strange ships were entirely gray and that they glittered, even under that dark sky, even in all that drenching rain, they shone. Once for a moment, the clouds parted and a ray of sunlight struck the sea and the ships disappeared. And then the clouds closed and the ships were there again. Dear God, cried the Admiral, what does all this mean? Perhaps, said Perroquet uneasily, the British ships have all been sunk and these are their ghosts. Still the strange ships glittered and shone. This led to some discussion as to what they might be made of. The Admiral thought perhaps iron or steel. Metal ships, indeed, this is a parenthetical. The French are, as I have often supposed, a very whimsical nation. This whole book is written in this sort of wonderful Regency kind of voice. Captain Jumeau wondered if they might not be of silver paper. Silver paper? exclaimed the Admiral. Oh, yes, said Captain Jumeau. Ladies, you know, take silver paper and roll it into quills, make little baskets of it, which they then decorate with flowers and fill with sugar plums. The Admiral and Perroquet were surprised to hear this, but Captain Jumeau was a handsome man, <clears throat> and he clearly knew more of the ways of ladies than they did. But if it took one lady an evening to make a basket, how many ladies would it take to make a fleet? The Admiral said it made his head hurt to think of it. The sun came out again. This time, since they were closer to the ships, they could see how the sunlight shone through them and made them colorless until they were just a faint sparkle upon the water. Glass, said the Admiral, and he was near to the mark, but it was clever Perroquet who finally hit upon the truth. No, my Admiral, it is the rain. They are made of rain. What you've got in that passage is just three people observing magic being done. And... I think it's the first time since I was a child that I read a description of magic that really felt realistic to me. And it's partly because 
Clark has thought through the physical properties of this illusion that she's describing so thoroughly. She understands how it would behave with respect to sort of real physical laws, uh, the sort of optics of it. Uh, it's so vivid. And then the other aspect of it is that the characters feel real. If you have a real feeling character looking at something, whatever they're looking at it, uh, even if it's magic, uh, also starts to feel real. Can you read something that you wrote? It might be something that was tricky to uh, change or edit or just something that you like how it turned out. Yeah, I'll read something short. And it's just a single paragraph. comes midway through The Magicians. Um, it's something that I'm proud of and something that, that, that took a lot of work. And it's a description of what it would feel like to be transformed into a goose. Just the physical sensations involved. You're standing there, you're a person, someone casts a spell, and you start to metamorphose into a goose. Instantly, a huge soft weight pressed down on Quentin, settling on his shoulders, bending him forward. He crouched down, straining against it. He tried to fight it, to lift it. It was crushing him. He bit back panic. It flashed through his brain. The beast was back, but this was different. As he doubled over, he felt his knees folding up into his belly, merging with it. Why wasn't Professor Vanderveg helping them? Quentin's neck was stretching and stretching out and forward, out of his control. It was grotesque, a horrible dream. He wanted to vomit, but he couldn't. His toes were melting and flowing together. His fingers were elongating enormously and spreading out, and something soft and warm was bursting out of his arms and chest, covering him completely. His lips pouted grotesquely and hardened, the narrow strip of roof rose up to meet him. And then by the end of that paragraph, he's a goose. Uh, and I just I want, just wanted to get at the physical strangeness um, that you'd experience if that kind of magic was done to you. I feel like we're, we're used to seeing a, a wizard sort of snap his fingers and then you know you blip and you turn into something else. Um, but what would it feel like to have your flesh just physically reshaped by magic? That was what I was trying to get at in that paragraph. Uh, and it did cost me, it cost me a lot of work. But now you can fly. <laughs> and now I can fly whenever I like. So, you know, it was, it was worth it. Where do you write? You know, I write, I, I write wherever I can. I have, I have three kids. Um, for at least part of the year, I'm working a full-time job. I frequently end up doing my writing on the subway because uh, I don't generally get to pick and choose when I have free time. I carry a MacBook Air around with me all the time. And if I've got 20 minutes where I feel like I'm going to be uninterrupted, I sit down, I crack it open, uh, and I write just wherever I happen to be. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? The thing I do to get away from writing uh, is that I cook. I feel like um, after a day spent tapping buttons on a computer and staring at a screen, cooking is the activity that activates all those other senses that I have been neglecting. Just the sound and the touch and the smell and the taste. All those senses that are just, um, you know, that just go blind for most of the day when you're writing. Cooking brings it all back to life. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to my wife. My wife is an English professor and considerably smarter than I am and knows 
everything about the history of the novel. Uh, and she's also a writer herself, a novelist. I, if I weren't married married to her, I would pay her huge amounts of money to read my work. Um, but fortunately for me, I get it for free. And how have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is a really important part of being a writer. And uh, I thought about this, and my first answer was, first poorly, and then well. I am extremely thin-skinned, um, and I take rejection really badly. Um, but uh, And I sulk about it for about a week. And then it hits me that whoever rejected me almost always had a really valid point to make about um, about what I'd written, and I really ought to be listening to that. I find, by the way, that that is one of the things, possibly the main thing that separates successful writers from unsuccessful writers is how they handle rejection, because any writer has to deal with a lot of it. What is your favorite word? You know, I really tried a lot of words as, a, as an answer to this. Um, uh, I tried closure, and I tried hyacinth, but uh, the, 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 the truth is, is an uninteresting answer, which is, I love them all. I mean, they're the, you know, they're the tools. You sort of ask somebody who builds walls, which brick is your favorite? Well, they just like bricks. Um, I think I just like words. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lev Grossman, author of the Magician's Trilogy of Literary Fantasy Novels. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.